Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and today we're privileged to have with us David Zucchino, the author of Thunder Run, The Armored Strike to Capture Baghdad. David is the national columnist, correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and a four-time nominee for the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism, which he won in 1989 for a compelling series on apartheid in South Africa. David, welcome. Good to be here. Our pleasure. Um, why did you choose the title Thunder Run? You call this one of the most decisive battles in American history, too. Uh, how come? Yeah, um, well, Thunder Run refers to uh, armored strikes during the Vietnam War between what they called Thunder Bases, and they would send armored units up and down the, the roads to keep them open from, from Viet Cong attacks, and basically they would just fire in every direction. This uh, attack on Baghdad in April 2003 was very similar to that, used the same tactics. It was a very decisive battle. If you recall, um, a lot of the pundits were saying it was going to last for weeks and weeks, that uh, American forces really weren't trained or suited for this kind of urban combat. Uh, and actually, in, in three days, uh, this brigade, with, with help from other units, of course, uh, basically uprooted the regime and uh, forced the collapse of the government. Okay. Uh, you yourself were uh, an embedded journalist, I right. guess, before the year 2000 and freed out. Word didn't even exist. Embedded journalist. Can, uh, now, everybody knows what it means, but I think very few people have an appreciation of what it really was. Can, can you tell us about your experiences? Yeah, I started out actually embedded with a different unit. It was the 101st uh, Airborne Division. Um, I was with them in Kuwait. All the reporters were back in Kuwait prior to the, to the launch of the operation and went, went off on uh, March, I think it was March 20th of 2003. I was with what they call a lift unit. It was a helicopter unit that was supposed to go but ended up not going. So I was stuck there. I'd been sent to cover the war and I was with a unit that wasn't going. So I basically hitchhiked a ride with different units within the 101st and finally uh, worked my way into uh, southern Iraq. Um, and I ended up going through six different units. Uh, finally ended up at the main airport on the 5th of April, which is the day the first of these thunder runs came through by the uh, 3rd Infantry Division. And that's where I met these guys and hooked up with them at the airport. And then I sort of embedded myself with them with the permission of the commanding officer. I just walked up to him and said, hey, um, I'd like to sort of join your unit. And he said, come along. So it was very simple. Um, you weren't really supposed to do that. Under the rules mm -hmm. of the embedding, embedding was embedded for life, was, was what they called it. You weren't supposed to move, but there was nobody to stop me. And um, in, a, in a war zone, things are very chaotic, and you can mm -hmm. take advantage of that and end up pretty much going wherever you want as long as you've got the, the commander's permission, which I did in this case. And then I spent the rest of the war and after, you know, after the so-called combat phase with this same unit. Right. And uh, the soldiers, how did they regard you uh, as a journalist? Did they treat you nicely or uh, yes. did you find? Yeah, soldiers were a little wary at first. And I've mm -hmm. talked to other journalists who had the same experience because there's this long history of uh, sort of suspicion and hostility between the, uh, the press uh, and the military going back to Vietnam. But uh, once you get to know these people on an individual basis, once they get to know you, um, all that broke down. And in fact, you were spending 24 hours a day with these guys. You were living, basically sleeping in holes in the dirt right next to them. You were uh, eating with them. You were moving with them. You were uh, going through the same experience they were. And, and, and there was bonding really pretty quickly between uh, reporters and members of the units. And in fact, as a reporter, you sort of have to remember to sort of stand back a little bit and not become part of what you're reporting, which is mm -hmm. very difficult yeah. under those circumstances. And it was hard at sometimes to, to step back and be objective. Right. 
you talk about the, uh, of course, the nickname for the unit you were with, the Spartan Brigade. Uh, what was its specific mission? Yeah, the Spartan Brigade was the 2nd Brigade of the 3rd Infantry Division, and initially their mission was to act as what they call a blocking force. They were supposed to surround, be one of the armored units that surrounded Baghdad while the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne, which are light infantry units, were going to go in and clear Baghdad street by street. Uh, but the night before this second thunder run, which was April 7th, the order suddenly changed and the 2nd Brigade was tasked to be the unit that actually went in to the city. Uh, their original order was to go into the city as, as part of an armored strike and come back and they were going to do a series of these strikes over several weeks. Um, the commander of the brigade, a guy named uh, Colonel David Perkins, decided once he got into the city, he thought he could hold it and that it would be foolish to come back out. He would risk a lot of men and a lot of lives. He thought he could stay and it ended up, uh, he, he decided to stay, did stay, and that really turned, was the turning point in the war. Excellent. Your book is excellent and actually it reads like a novel. and. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that for that is it includes so many interviews with so many of the men, like right. Colonel Perkins, that you got to know. Can you uh, share some maybe some stories about some of the memorable uh, men that came across right. your path in uh, in well, Baghdad? Yeah, certainly uh, Colonel Perkins was one of them. He was a very interesting character. He was teaching mechanical engineering at West Point during the first Gulf War. He had zero combat experience. He was 44 years old, uh, uh, very academic in nature, very quiet and reserved. He's not the sort of gung-ho, loud, screaming sort of commander that uh, you, uh, you see in the movies. Um, he's very quiet, very, very thoughtful, but also very determined. Um, his first really taste of combat was uh, in the southern Iraqi desert when this unit was coming up uh, in late March of 2003. Um, that was his only preparation for what happened, but he was very cool, very calm, and very collected. Uh, took a very, very sober and calculated look at the situation, particularly in downtown Baghdad, he realized that it wasn't going to be tall buildings, it wasn't going to be narrow sort of uh, slum areas that make it very difficult to fight. Um, he realized that what they needed to capture was the government complex, which was wide open, it was broad boulevards, it was gardens, uh, very few tall buildings, and best of all, from his point of view, there were no civilians there because Saddam Hussein had kept that area closed off to civilians, and he realized he had good fields of fire there and open areas, and that's why he decided to stay. Fine. Who was uh, Major General Buford Blunt? Uh, Major General Blunt was the commander of the entire division, the 3rd okay. Infantry Division. Uh, the 2nd Brigade was one of three brigades within that division. He spent the battle at the airport after the 3rd uh, ID took the airport uh, on the 4th of April, and he sort of directed the battle from there uh, through satellite communications and, and radio, whereas uh, Colonel Perkins, who uh, reported directly to him, uh, was the one who led the actual assault into the city. Good. Um, you know, Americans, uh, you know, we had the impression that the Iraqi war was a quick and easy victory because it was so right. quick, but your book definitely dispels this false impression. Uh, what conditions and circumstances actually made this a, a very difficult battle? Uh, one thing that made it so difficult was the lack of intelligence. They, it wasn't a matter of having bad intelligence. They had no intelligence about uh, who the enemy was, um, how good they were. Um, how badly they had been attrited by coalition aircraft, uh, where they were. Um, they had no idea about the defenses in the city. They basically went in blind. That made it very difficult. The other difficult factor was that a lot of the um, 
regular army sort of melted away and uh, took off their uniforms and fled. But uh, people like the Saddam Fedayeen, which are these um, militiamen, the Ba'ath Party militiamen, uh, various uh, Syrians and other Arab volunteers, all were fighting in civilian clothes, fighting from civilian neighborhoods, firing from hospitals and mosques. They were also in civilian vehicles, packed, some of them packed with explosives and mixed in with civilian traffic. So that made it extremely difficult going up uh, uh, the highway, Highway 8, into the city to try to determine who was a combatant and who wasn't, which made it very, very difficult for the guys in the tank crews. Uh, Dave, right before the break, we were starting to talk about the uh, military intelligence received uh, let's let's continue. How reliable was it? Was the intelligence? That uh, basically, not at all. They got very little intelligence. They had um, satellite maps that were a couple of weeks old, so they were pretty much useless. They, I mean, they showed what the situation would have been two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing that really surprised them was this network of trenches and bunkers all the way up and down the highway leading into the city and all through the governmental complex. And they didn't even know about it, obviously, until they got there and people were firing at them. And uh, the Iraqis were using these trenches to resupply with ammunition and, and with men. Uh, and the Americans were sort of hit with this and, and had to deal with it. Um, I talked to a captain uh, who was involved in, in some of the, the heaviest fighting in downtown Baghdad, and he told me that the day after Baghdad fell, he ran into a French journalist who had been covering the war from the other mm -hmm. side and had been there prior to the war. And the journalist told him, oh, I wrote every day about this uh, uh, network of bunkers and fortifications they were building is in the paper every day. And yet it was, you know, it was public knowledge at the CIA or no, nobody in the American intelligence picked it up and passed it down to the guys on the ground. Uh, going into the battle, what was the Americans' impression of the Iraqi military? They knew uh, the Iraqi military had been degraded first in the in the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was one of the largest armies in the world and actually still was. Um, they knew that um, coalition aircraft for, uh, what, at least two weeks had been pounding them. Um, they knew that they had to hit them pretty hard in the south as they were coming up, but they still had no clear indication of how many of the guys would stand and fight, what kind of equipment they had. They knew they had lots of tanks and armored vehicles. They had. They were very worried about their surface-to-air missiles and their anti-aircraft gun, and, and the U.S. did lose some aircraft, and they were very concerned about that. Uh, but mostly they didn't have a, an appreciation of their will to fight. How hard would they fight for Saddam Hussein? How motivated were they? Um, as it turned out, as, a, as I said before, the real problem came from the Fidayeen, the Ba'ath Party militiamen, and these, these foreign... Uh, foreign fighters, uh, as well as uh, a lot of the Republican guards and special Republican guards fought, but again, in civilian clothes, not, not in the regular uniforms, which made, made it very difficult to determine who was who. What, what do you think was actually motivating the soldiers to fight for somebody as, as brutal as Hussein? Was it just fear of what would happen if they didn't? Uh, that was part of it. Um, a lot of the regular soldiers who were conscripts and were forced to fight, those are the guys who melted away. But the, the, some of the guys in the Special Republican Guards, particularly in the Ba'ath Party militiamen, had a real stake in the regime. Um, they were sort of favored sons. They, uh, a lot of them were relatives from Tikrit or had extended family ties. And then they had a real interest in seeing that the regime stayed together because their, uh, their very livelihood and their very being basically relied on the regime. So they had a motivation to fight. But the average soldier absolutely had no reason yeah. to fight and die for Saddam Hussein. Um, there were reports that some of the fleeing soldiers were executed. I was never able to, to confirm that, you know, shot by their own commanders. But I did talk, and there's a section in the book, I talked to a lot of the senior uh, Republican Guard and intelligence and Air Force 
Force officers and some ordinary soldiers uh, who said the orders were so confusing. Uh, some orders were said to put on civilian clothes and, and go back to your homes and, and return to fight. Others said uh, move tanks around. They had them buried in the aircraft. It was extremely confusing. There were no single coherent set of orders, um, which obviously undermined morale for a lot of these guys, and they just walked away. Uh, you, you tell us, you know, Baghdad is a city of five million people. And uh, how do you prepare for urban warfare under those circumstances? In this case, the, the 2nd Brigade and the entire 3rd Infantry uh, really didn't practice that much for open warfare. They are a, a mechanized unit. They train for open desert warfare such as took place in uh, the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a little bit of training at the uh, National Training Center in California. On uh, There was one segment on urban training, and they did a little bit. They built a mock village in Kuwait prior to the war. Other than that, they, they really had no urban training because th this kind of unit is not designed for urban combat. The other thing that they weren't ready for was fighting on a, on a highway. Uh, highway 8, which leads south in, uh, from the south into Baghdad, uh, is like the Jersey Turnpike. It's a three or four lane on each side, divided mm -hmm. modern superhighway. Uh, they had real problems with the Iraqis and the Syrians getting up under the overpasses and firing down on the on the uh, tanks and using the access roads for, for supplies and equipment, they had never trained on an open highway. It had never occurred to them that they'd actually be fighting on a superhighway. Mm -hmm. Another example of um, you know, how combat a lot of times will just surprise you and there's some things you just can't prepare for. Right. You mentioned the Syrians. Were they fighting as mercenaries? Yes. Yeah. The Syrians were, were mm -hmm. definitely mercenaries. Mm -hmm. The call went out uh, to all the, the Arab jihadis you know, to come into Baghdad and once um, the invasion started, the borders collapsed, uh, the Syrians came in, Jordanians, Saudis, people from Yemen. Uh, the bulk of them were Syrians. They were paid. Um, they found the bodies of some of these guys, the Syrians who had been killed, were stuffed with Iraqi dinars. Uh, but when you call them mercenary, that's, that's not the whole story. I think a lot of these guys were motivated to fight the infidels. Mm -hmm. they, they heard mm -hmm. the call of Islam mm -hmm. as well as, as being paid. So right. um, I think they were very, very committed. And in fact, the soldiers said they, were the, they and the Fedayeen were the ones who fought the hardest and were the most suicidal. Right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Most of the American soldiers obviously didn't have combat experience. So mm. they were sort of facing death for the first time, either as potential victims or killers of foreign uh, um, Soldiers, right. how, how did they, they react to this? Uh, right, almost, almost none of the ordinary soldiers um, had been in combat before. Most <laughs> of these, the guys in, in, in the tank crews and the infantry guys are 19, 20, 21 years old with no experience. Some of the uh, senior NCOs and the officers had, had fought in the first Gulf War, but they were the only ones with experience. Um, a lot of these guys, when I sat down and talked to them afterwards, said they thought they knew what to expect, that they thought they were prepared, and then they admitted they were not prepared at all just for the scale of the killing that was involved. They had no idea they would absolutely have to kill as many people as they did to get the job done. Uh, they had practiced and trained, but you're, you're not killing human beings. Obviously, in training, they're shooting at targets, and then when they started killing human beings, and it, it was very graphic, it was right in front of them, um, it was large numbers of people, and it was very, very disturbing to these guys. A lot of them are still having problems now. I'm in touch with them. Um, a lot of them have seen psychiatrists. They all went to the chaplains, you know, afterward to try to, to deal with this. Um, the, you know, the impression you sometimes get of soldiers as being gung-ho and really, you know, dying to get out there and kill somebody. These guys weren't. It, it, they got no real pleasure, you know, uh, out, of, out of killing. In fact, as I say, they were, they were quite disturbed by it. 
Right. I, I think in the actual the war phase, about 147 Americans were killed. Right. So do we do we know how many Iraqis were killed or have been killed? Yeah, the estimates, the, the so-called so uh, battle damage assessment by the brigade on these two thunder runs on April 5th and April 7th, they guessed roughly a thousand on each one. Um, the number of civilians is anybody's guess. Um, I've seen estimates for the entire campaign of uh, 10,000 civilians. I don't know if it's that high, but there is no doubt a lot of civilians were killed just because they blundered in into the fighting. If you recall, the uh, information minister, uh, Mr. Sahaf, yeah. was on national TV yeah. saying there are no Americans in the city. Right. Um, we've stopped them below the Euphrates. We're winning the war. We, we, there was suicide at the gates of Baghdad. And then civilians hear that, and they were out on this highway, they were out in traffic, having no idea the Americans were in the city, and that really contributed to the high level of casualties and the fact that the uh, Iraqis dressed in civilian clothes, the Iraqi fighters and the Syrians, um, exposed a lot of civilians to, uh, to harm. When uh, we left, we were just talking, starting to talk about the strategy for taking Saddam Hussein's palace. Which, which were the specific targets that were selected? Yeah, as, as part of the embedding process, um, reporters were allowed to go to the intelligence meetings and to the planning meetings where they laid out the whole attack. And to me, that was fascinating. And as part of that process, uh, the commanders decided they had to go for key, what they called key nodes. And this would have been the Republican palace, something called the Sajud palace, which was uh, the second of the two major palaces uh, that Saddam Hussein used. They wanted to get the Ba'ath Party headquarters, um, the uh, parade ground and reviewing stand, where I, I think a lot of people have seen Saddam on TV mm -hmm. uh, yeah. reviewing, reviewing the troops, the uh, Al-Rashid Hotel, which where the Ba'ath Party militia gathered. And they thought that if they got these key nodes, they didn't have to really worry about the rest of Baghdad. That was the heart and the center of the government. And that's why they decided to go straight into the city and sort of collapse the regime from within. Okay. You've been mentioning some uh, names, Republican Guard, Ba'ath Party, Militia. Can you explain a little of this Iraqi military structure to us? Right. Um, there's the, the regular army, uh, which is mostly conscripts. Uh, there was the Republican Guard, which was more of a, an elite sort of force. And then the special Republican Guard with the, with the actual guards uh, personally for Saddam Hussein and for the, the leadership elite, the Ba'ath Party elite. Um, the Saddam Fidayeen were um, sort of urban militiamen, um, they were headed by Uday Hussein, uh, uh, one of Saddam's sons. Um, his other son, Kusay, uh, was in charge of the uh, Republican guards. Uh, the Fedayeen were probably the most loyal and, and the fiercest, and the ones, as I said before, that gave the Americans the most trouble. And also in each town, in each city, there were Ba'ath Party militiamen, and these were sort of, uh, you know, sort of part-time soldiers, but they were all called to duty uh, during the war to, to try to defend the cities, which they weren't able to do because the situation was so confused and they had such poor leadership. Interesting quote you have in your book. You describe Saddam's Republican palace as less like Versailles and more like Las Vegas with a touch of Graceland. Right. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, when, uh, when, when I first went in there, it is very impressive. Um, you see these uh, chandeliers and all this, uh, this uh, gilded uh, windows, uh, mahogany doors, marble floors. And then after I was there for a while, you start looking closer and you realize, for one thing, a lot of the furniture was made out of cheap wood and painted in this uh, gold gilt. You realize the uh, chandeliers, most of them are not crystal, they're glass. Um, the construction was, was fairly shoddy, things were falling apart. Um, the marble was very expensive, but it was poorly put together and you could see cracks and seams. Um, and it was pretty much decorated in a very ostent ostentatious uh, sort of overly done style. So it, it just sort of hit me after a while that it, it was a lot like Graceland. <laughs>
but, but with no no tours. Yeah, with no tours. I got my own personal tour. <laughs> right. What was the talk? Uh, the talk was the Tactical Operations Center, and this mm -hmm. was basically the brigade rear headquarters. It was about, um, I think, 12, 15 miles south of the city on Highway 8, and that's where they launched both of these uh, Thunder Ruds, these raids from. And on April 7th, um, the talk was where all the satellite and radio communications came in, and they were basically running the battle. Colonel Perkins, the commander, was in an armored personnel carrier on the actual run, but he was in contact uh, with officers back at the talk um, to keep abreast of the battle. And the talk was also talking to uh, division headquarters at the airport. And on the morning of April 7th, the second decisive run into the city, uh, a missile fired by uh, Iraqis, scored a direct hit right on top of the talk, um, destroyed all their communications equipment, all the communications vehicles. It killed three soldiers and, and two journalists um, who decided to stay there, thinking it was safer than going into the city. Uh, that was a devastating blow and really cut off uh, the tank battalion that was inside the city already uh, from any communications and any support for more than an hour. And, um, the guys who survived the hit did a, an amazing job of cobbling together um, spare equipment and, and putting together sort of a rudimentary satellite and radio operation that sort of got them through the battle, but it, it was touch and go for a long way. Yeah. Uh, did you have any regular contact with other embedded journalists and if, were their impressions of the war similar to yours? I didn't uh, during the war. I, I almost saw no other journalists uh, during the battle because things were so crazy and, and everybody was moving with their own units. Um, I talked to, to them later and mo most of them had the same kind of experience. I had a little bit different experience. Um, as I said before, I was initially embedded with 101st Airborne and um, I was in a truck that got into an accident and plunged into a canal. Uh, in the middle of the night outside uh, Karbala, south of Baghdad, and I lost all my gear, uh, which was really tough. One, I couldn't file. I lost my sat phones and, uh, and my computer. But secondly, I was totally cut off from any information about what was happening in the rest of the war, which was sort of one of the uh, detriments of the embedding process. Um, you were so ignorant of what was happening beyond you know, what your own unit was doing. Um, and that made it very difficult to, to have any perspective on the war. All I knew what was, was what was happening in front of me. Uh, well, aside from that, uh uh, fiasco. How did you get your information about the war and were you satisfied with the information you, you got? I basically got no information no, 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 um, no. until no. Uh, the war was over and then I, you know, when I got back home that summer I started uh, going through, you know, newspaper yeah. stories and, yeah. and reviewing and, and I was amazed at how much I didn't know. Um, if my newspaper, the LA Times, had to rely on me to cover the war, they would have been in trouble. But we had seven embedded reporters and mm -hmm. we had people in Baghdad. We had people back at the Pentagon, um, all through the Arab capital. So I was only providing one little piece um, of the entire war coverage. Fine. Now, you, uh, you tell us, you told me during the break you're going to be going back to Afghanistan. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. In another month or so, probably. And you're going to be um, any particular... Uh, assignment? Yeah, I'm trying to uh, set up a, a, another embedded uh, reporting assignment with uh, one of the units that's on the border with Pakistan and trying to hunt mm -hmm. down al-Qaeda and Taliban, Taliban uh, as well mm -hmm. as uh, Osama bin Laden himself, who, right. who, as you've probably heard, is believed to be hiding in the, in the uh, mountains on the Pakistan right. side of the border. Right. And uh, this is your fourth time? It'll be the fifth trip back to Fifth, fifth trip Afghanistan. to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, just... Uh, Briefly, in, in summation here, is there anything you can tell us about your experience that you think uh, tells us how the, the war is going in general, your own thoughts on that? Um, 
I think what's really happening is now is that th these particular two battles that I write about in this book were really a prelude to what's happening now. Um, that was the first time the Americans came across the tactics that the, the insurgents are using now, which are hit and run tactics, uh, people in civilian clothes, firing from civilian areas, using RPGs, um, roadside bombs and car bombs. Um, they've obviously perfected them. This was their practice run. Um, I don't think anybody at that time had um, the realization that they would just fall back, disappear for a while, and then come back. I don't think anybody expected the insurgency to be this powerful and to be lasting this long. And um, I don't see it getting better anytime soon. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. David Zucchino, thank you so much for joining us today. And I thank encourage you. all our viewers to either come into the library or hit the bookstores for Thunder Run, The Armored Strike to Capture Baghdad. It's a fascinating story and it's very well told. I'm Carl Hellecker, and this has been Book Chat.